Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. It felt very apocalyptic. It felt like I was standing in the (laughs) middle of like a street, nobody around and like smoke rising from the asphalt, just to give you like the visual. It was like, I, I had no kids, right? So I had this 14 year old daughter who I just sold to some other person. In the process of that, I went through a huge ego death because now I was the CEO of this company for 14 years. I had a team of people to rely on and support me as much as I was supporting them. And when that company was gone, nobody else was around. It was just me. And with the agreement that I had in place, I couldn't take an ownership role in another agency. I couldn't start another agency. Uh, Obviously, I couldn't contact any of the clients I was working with. So I felt very much like golden handcuffs. I felt very alone. Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. My new book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is now live on Amazon Kindle, on paperback, as well as hardcover. So to tell you about the book and to give you a little context, in a world of noise, competition, and skepticism, you've probably found that spamming your prospects with undifferentiated pitches, case studies, and sales collateral is a lot like yelling at a brick wall. And on the other hand, trying to go old school and completely personalize every touch point 100% is unrealistic and unsustainable because the few people you manage to contact might not even notice or care. And when life gets busy, your sales activity and your team's activity tends to grind to a halt. Your pipeline runs dry and stagnation, feast and famine, all these bad things, they can all happen. So what if the answer is actually combining the new school with the old? And instead of going in cold, how much faster could you grow if you could identify and open doors with the prospects who live within your circles of influence and are already primed to trust and do business with you? So this book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is the new selling philosophy for our age. Bold statement, right? But it is because it marries the timeless power of tribe-based trust with digitally enabled scale so you can open doors tastefully and convert prospects consistently, all without spamming anyone. So it's written by me, Dan Englander. I'm the CEO and founder of this company, Sales Schema, and the book's stories, strategies, and hands-on resources are grounded in thousands of outreach campaigns conducted for clients since 2014. That's among almost 90 clients to secure opportunities between our clients and hard-to-reach prospects, including the leaders of the largest companies on earth. A few things you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to balance personalization and scale to keep your pipeline full and achieve reliable and predictable growth. You're going to learn how to condense five years of networking into a single week-long campaign so you can batch up warm referrals into specific ideal accounts. You're going to learn how to de-risk conversations. That's the, the emphasis for this with highly skeptical prospects by leveraging strong personal commonalities instead of boring publicly available information like, hey, I saw you tweeted about this thing last week. That doesn't work. And you're going to be able to leverage dozens of actual copy examples, campaign strategies, and online resources so you can launch and close deals in a matter of weeks. So Relationship Sales and Scale will reshape the way you think about sales and business development, whether you are an owner, a dedicated salesperson, or in any growth-focused role. 
This book is a fit for the owners and salespeople in professional service companies and other B2B service and or software areas, assuming you're going after high lifetime value. So this is not for small and medium-sized businesses. So with that said, if you would like to learn more and pick up the book on Kindle or paperback or hardcover, and eventually we'll have it out in audio before too long, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash rsas. Again, that's saleschema.com slash rsas. Walking through the apocalyptic ruins of a burnt-out city. That's how today's guest described the emotional aftermath of selling her agency. At first glance, it might sound dramatic, but I've heard this feeling echoed over and over again by business owners after acquisition. So today's interview is a throwback with friend of the show, Kelly Campbell. It's all about going from selling an agency to scaling dozens of them, and I think you're going to learn a whole lot from Kelly. Some things we covered, what she wishes she did before going through the acquisition process, the most important starting place for building saleable assets, why generalist firms are rarely acquired, resource rosters and why they matter, and scale, what Kelly learned in the trenches. So without further ado, please give it up for Kelly Campbell. Kelly, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So we've known each other for a little while, and we've talked a little bit about your journey, and you're obviously doing lots with coaching and positioning in the agency space. Yeah. But you know, there's, there's a lot of places we could jump off with. But at first, maybe it would be, be good just to hear about how you got to this point and what it took to start your agency before you got to this point now. Yeah. So it's been a journey, man. (laughs) So when I was, I guess I was 22, I was working in corporate America for just about a year and a half, two years out of college and just hating every day going to work. I worked in a very male dominated hedge fund firm that had a technology spinoff. I was making incredible money for my age and really very little experience. But what I noticed was there was a ton of inefficiency. And so little by little, I do what all design and development practitioners do. You start building up a little client base on the side. At that point, this was like early in the Google days. So I wasn't even Googling. I was literally just going through the phone book. And I started calling businesses in the area, seeing if they had websites, if they were doing email marketing. And at that point, none of them really were. Or if they were, it was like too much for them to handle. And they were like, yeah, come on, come on in, let's talk. Clearly, that none of that would work today, but it was you know, a supply and demand situation. So that's essentially how I started the firm was just myself and I had an outsourced team in China, found out again through making mistakes that that was not really the way to go. You know, The reality was that the time zone, the language barrier, even though the cost was cheap, it just it wasn't producing the quality that I wanted to put my name behind. So I transitioned that pretty quickly to... Uh, a firm that I was working with in Rhode Island. So I had everybody stateside and had that day where I was like, wow, I think I need to actually hire my first employee, which is the scariest thing in the entire world, right? Yeah. You know, I'm good with payroll for myself and I'm making a great living, but having to be responsible for that other person, right? It's uh, it's a lot of weight on somebody's shoulders. So I understand uh, a lot of people who have been in that situation, and we all have been, right? Unless we took over an existing firm or joined in some partnership capacity. So uh, little by little, over the course of about 14 years, I scaled the agency. We had 15 full-time employees in New York, and I had originally started the agency in Nyack and then moved it into the city and then came back. So a little bit of transition over that time. But 
to be honest with you, um, I sold the firm about four years ago now. And at that point, I was thinking maybe around 35 that I was just really burned out. I was working like 70 hours a week, 60, 70 hours a week, really impacted my marriage and impacted my health. And I just kind of had this like, come to Jesus moment where I was like, am I actually happy? And when the answer was a resounding, you know, no from my gut, I was like, oh, I think I actually want to maybe sell this, maybe just figure out a way where I could be doing something different. And I didn't know what the different thing was, but I knew I wasn't happy. So I guess I kind of manifested um, two offers to purchase the business within the same 30 days of each other. I was like, well, if that hasn't happened in 14 years, then clearly this is something I need to look at. Ended up selling it to who was a client at that point, who was not one of the original offers. And that was it. And the whole deal was wrapped up literally within like three, four months. Wow. That's so, probably the, the exception, not the norm. So that's not that's- the norm at all. Not the norm at all. And I will say that one of the lessons that came out of that was that I did not do my due diligence to really figure out if it was a cultural alignment, right? So my firm was focused on, you know, nonprofits and CSR initiatives and foundations. Those were the core of who we serve. That was our positioning. And that wasn't necessarily the positioning at all of the firm that ended up purchasing it. We were very focused because of that space. We were very focused on people over profit. And that wasn't really the case for the acquiring firm. So, you know, it was something that in retrospect, I wish that I had uh, really taken the time to do that due diligence and not just look sort of for a way out. But at the time, that's really what I needed. So just, you know, I, I'm tr- right. why not be transparent about it? I mean, that that's the reality yeah. of the situation. Yeah, I think that that's really valuable. And without going into the nitty gritty or the, the, any details on the deal or anything like that, I guess I'm curious, what, what do you think it was that the acquiring party saw that made it a no-brainer for them to snag up your agency in three months? Like, what do you think that they were thinking and buying? Yeah, so, so the firm was an IT services firm. And so I kind of asked the same question, like, why do you want my agency, mm-hmm. right? And so they said, well, um, it's pretty simple. All the clients that you have uh, already think that you do IT services, right? They think that you can help them with hosting and email posting and technical support and all of that, which you don't like we dabbled in that, but it wasn't our core strength. And all of their clients already thought that they did website design and digital marketing and SEO, which they didn't. So he's like, you know, it was a a perfect sort of cross sell, if you will. And, you know, I guess uh, for him, it made all the sense in the world. The other thing I'll say from the valuation standpoint is that I would not ever say that I made myself optional in the business. Even after 14 years, I could have done a better job of that. Um, But the company was running because of the team that we had. They were incredibly dedicated and talented and very driven, great with clients the team was able to run a lot of that without me. I was more focused on business development and, you know, culture and vision and all of those things. So not optional, you know, I couldn't just take off for three months and have things run by themselves, but it was, uh, I felt very comfortable and confident in my team. So the acquiring firm looked at the fact that it didn't need me to continue to run. So that was one thing. And then we were so good at search engine optimization that we were able to rank our site. Again, it took 10 years. So this is not a a quick process, but we were able to rank for things like custom website design, custom website development across the US on page one. 
And I think that there's a lot of value in that. And uh, most agencies don't think about that as something that could be part of evaluation. And of course, it it necessitates uptake. Uh, You know, you need to keep it keep it up essentially. Right. It doesn't just stay there without some kind of work. But that was definitely, I think, part of that that valuation. And then of course we had trademarks and we had proprietary technology that we had developed. So there was a lot. It was the assets of the company, it was the clients and you know some of the other things that were more valuable to them. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Yeah, I think that's that's really great. I really want to dig into to those assets and what you're seeing with your clients now. I guess before that though, what what was it like right after you sold? Like what was that? <laughs> like day? Like I'm just curious. Oh damn. Now we're gonna get into it. Yeah. Uh, what was the emotional journey like after I sold my company? Um, I I think you know I'm in the process of writing a book, my first book, and I actually described this in the book. It felt very apocalyptic. It felt like I was standing in the middle of like a street, nobody around, and like smoke rising from the asphalt. Just to give you like the visual, it was like I I had no kids, right? So I had this 14 year old daughter who I just sold to some other person. Yeah. In the process of that, I went through a huge ego death because now I was the CEO of this company for 14 years. I had a team of people to rely on and um, support me as much as I was supporting them. And when that company was gone, nobody else was around. It was just me. And with the agreement that I had in place, I couldn't take an ownership role in another agency. I couldn't start another agency. Uh, Obviously, I couldn't contact any of the clients I was working with. So I felt very much like golden handcuffs. I felt very alone. Yeah. Very, very alone. And I had no idea what I was going to do next. I felt a little unemployable, to be honest with you. Maybe that was more of a self-worth issue because I had only known what it was like to be an agency owner for the entirety of my adult life. So it um, it was tough. It was tough. And it was at that point that I think I started to go through this awakening of like, I can't even answer questions like, who am I? What do I want to do? What am I passionate about? Right. Um, it was hard. So a lot of people who think happiness is just going to like, you know, flower around me once I sell this agency. I'm here to tell you that that may be your journey. That may be your experience. It was not mine. 
Right, right. And how long did I guess the better question is how did you how did you land on the business you have now? What did it take to get there? Yeah, so um, I would say for the first three months after I sold the firm, I was just kind of helping some other people from the MBA program that I was going through prior to selling the agency. I helped them with some of their digital marketing and some of their you know UX and SEO and CRO projects and things like that, just to kind of keep myself busy. And then I really started diving into okay. What are the things that I'm passionate about? What kind of life do I have? Do what do I want? Forget about what I have. Um, what kind of life do I want going forward? How much time do I actually want to be working versus playing and living? Because I've clearly not done any of that in my in my entire adult life because of this agency. But that was on me. That was my choice. I did that. And you know, what were the different skill sets and uh, expertises that I could bring to the table? And who would I best serve? So I started really thinking about that. And I think from the standpoint of very small barrier to entry and expertise in the field and passion and all those things, I was like, you know what, if I could have had a coach or a consultant who could come in because I was a sole owner, right? And and a lot of agency owners are, a couple, many have partners, but a lot of us are, are sole owners. And so without a partner in the business, if I could have had a coach or a consultant who was not an equity partner, but could help me think through things, be a sounding board, help me figure out things like uh, earlier on in the firm, positioning, pricing, business development strategies, um, you know, the, the entire holistic sort of spectrum of what it takes to own and run an agency I was like, oh man, I would love to do that. Like that sounds like a perfect fit. Um, and there wasn't a huge amount of competition at that time. I mean, now there's a lot more coaches and consultants out there because they realize that there's market demand. Yeah, but and there's a lot more agencies out there too. So right, right, so perhaps right. It's, it's it's coming. So up it's equal, equaling. Yeah, yeah and, and I definitely like your approach and find it compelling. And I think. More and more, um, there's more and more trust and I think more and more value going for the coaches and consultants that are kind of pitching themselves more like, hey, this is a hard thing you're doing and I'm here to help you and make it easier and and be there you know, as a sounding board and somebody that is going to help you develop this process as opposed to I have the special cheat code. And if you if you pay me, I'm going to give you the, the silver bullet. Yeah, there isn't one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I there think that the people selling in that way are starting to sort of trail. They're still there. They'll always be there. But I think it's the people that are kind of admitting that this is a hard thing and, and we're then there to help make it easier, but it's never going to be easy. Right. <laughs> sort of approach. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So one thing that you were talking about is the idea of building assets for the agency. And when you sold your agency, you had trademarks, you were ranked uh, SEO-wise, um, proprietary value. As you're working with clients now, and some of them might be focused on getting acquired or just uh, growing, getting better, what, what are some of those, those assets that agency owners are, are neglecting sometimes? What are those things that people don't think about that might be there for them? Yeah, well, I think that conversation kind of has to take a back step, right? Like you have to start foundationally. There are not a lot of generalist firms, maybe maybe ISL might be the exception to that. Mm -hmm. But there are not a lot of generalist firms that are acquired, right? Especially on the if you're talking about smaller agencies. Yeah. So I think you have to start with positioning. Because once you get into really strong positioning, whether that's 
vertical specific, service specific, or the combination of the two, like really, really deep positioning. Once you have that, then your clients are more ideal. There's more trust developed. There's less focus on pricing. And you probably can put some types of contracts like MSAs in place for a longer period of time from an asset standpoint or things that would be attractive to either an investor or an acquirer, or even from a merging standpoint. Mm-hmm. Those things are, I think, much more attractive. And then you get into, well, how optional is the owner or the the founder of the organization? And does that person want to stay on? Or do they want to just help with the transition and sort of leave? I would say that those things are sort of where to start. Right. And then in your situation, and perhaps your clients too, um, you, 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 know, you mentioned you weren't integral to all aspects of the business. So you, yeah. you still kind of were, were in the picture. What in your experience are the hardest things for, for owners to get off their plate? I think probably client relationships. There is this fear that I see over and over again, that if the owner doesn't maintain those relationships and they let the employees maintain those relationships, what happens when the employee leaves? right? So there's a fear of that. And so what happens is you set up expectations with the client to always come to you as the owner. And now you're dealing with production and client services and things that your team could easily be handling. So I think that's a little bit of it. Other things on their plate that shouldn't be. I think that there is a fear of outsourcing some things that could absolutely be outsourced or delegated either to in-house teams or external folks. One of the things that we did at my agency was we looked at the profitability of each service on a quarterly basis. And once there were three quarters in a row where something was not as profitable as I wanted it to be, in our case, it was social media management. We said, okay, it doesn't make sense to keep bleeding from this one service when other services are more profitable. Who can we find as a strategic partner to introduce these clients to and have all of that managed over there and then just essentially create a a resource roster where we have lots of strategic partners like that. And we're essentially just getting a commission for referring that work on a monthly basis up to 12 months. I mean, not, not forever. You got to be fair about it, but yeah, I think it's figuring out what are those strategic partners and those big, those things that you can outsource versus trying to do every single thing in-house because that, I think just stretches your team too thin. And what happens is the owners end up picking up the slack a lot of times. Right, right. That that makes sense. And I guess in, in, in that way, what are the sorts of ways that you're finding your clients are are hooking people up with strategic partners? Like what's what's that process look like when it works? For well? them or for me sharing them with other for, people? For them, for, for agencies, yeah. So for example, if you are a digital marketing agency and pretty much every agency, no matter what you're doing, you're a digital marketing agency, which is why I think that term is going to start falling off. Sorry to interrupt. That's that's kind of what we called the podcast as a way to niche without really niching. Right, 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 right. right. Since everybody has a digital component now. Digital marketing is not a niche. So I think if you're providing services that are under the umbrella of digital marketing and you think that you have to provide search engine optimization and PPC management and social and all of these things, content development, you need to have 100% full-time on-site staff to do that. You are definitely not doing it in a strategic way because Mm -hmm. there are firms out there who now specialize in white labeling those things for agencies, right? You do it from a business development standpoint with sales schema. I've got a partner in Pennsylvania that crushes PPC 
management, why not outsource to something like that where they'll handle all of the management, they'll handle the reporting. You can still have the relationship with the client, but I think it's, yeah, just opening it up and being a little bit more free, a little bit more not risk averse to looking at these other partners as ways in which you can still deliver results to the clients, but not necessarily take on so much from a payroll perspective. I think that's really where a lot of things are going in the agency world. Agencies are getting super, super top heavy and clients are starting to push back and say, I'll use you guys for this. I'll use this other firm for this. They're starting to really look at the numbers. And when you have agencies who have three layers deep of account management and client services and all of these different things, clients are not wanting to pay for it anymore. And that's the reality. Right. And and I guess just to play devil's advocate, do you think there could be a time where it swings back the other way where one of these brands is, is like, I'm sick of managing a dozen shops I'll pay more to have everything in one place. Do you, you see that happening? Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I mean, none of us are psychic in that way where we can sort of foresee the future. But sure. for right now, I think there are so many agencies that are able to be so much more nimble, take on a fewer number of clients, do really great work for them because they're getting much more into the business proposition, the value proposition of their business clients of the clients businesses delivering so much more value and again you can white label other partners you don't necessarily have to say to a client well use us for this and then we'll refer you out to someone else if you've more if you feel more comfortable and you have these relationships that build trust over time with other partners you can just white label them and then the brand or the client doesn't necessarily have to be paying five different vendors. They could just be paying you and you sort of funnel it through there. Um, The way that I like to approach things though is with transparency. So I would never make it seem like, hey, we're handling all of these services with our in-house W2 team. I would say, be very transparent. We're using this team for your SEO. We're using this team over here for that. But the value prop in us white labeling them or partnering with them is that you're paying one invoice and we're taking control over the whole thing from an account management perspective. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think one thing that a lot of our clients have had the challenge with is figuring out when it makes sense to use a strategic partner versus when to, when to in-house a particular service. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'd love to hear your experience with that. At what point... You know, because when you're dealing with a, with an out of house firm, they have their own priorities and, and their own direction they want to go. Yeah. When when either when you were running your agency or working with clients, now what are the sort of signals that you look for to tell you, okay, now it's time to probably hire somebody full time. It's worth taking this leap now. Yeah, I think part of it is capacity. You know, looking at and being really honest with your employees and getting that feedback from them as to like what capacity looks like. Obviously, you can look at timesheets, you can have conversations with them. Are they overwhelmed? Once your team, your in-house team starts to get that overwhelmed and you realize that an outsourced partner for that overflow work is going to be better in terms of your not adding to your overhead, I think that's a good signal. There are a lot of things from that perspective that I think sometimes it's just, again, coming back to positioning. What are we great at in-house? And what are the things that we're trying to keep our heads above water with, right? Right. Because if you're offering multiple different services, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know for sure that your agency is great at probably one or two of them, not five. Right. right? 
So looking at those and being really honest with yourself, this comes down to sort of introspection. And maybe it's not just introspection within the owner, but it's asking your team, what do you think our core strengths are? If you haven't had that conversation with your team, that's pretty eye-opening. You may get different answers, right? So I think focusing on what you're great at, outsourcing the things that you're not as great at and that you're driving your team crazy over because they're trying to figure out a lot of these things themselves, whether it's technical or SEO. I mean, SEO in and of itself, you've got to keep up with that changes to Google's algorithm on a daily or weekly basis. So right, I would right. say those two things would be the, the first two signals that I would look at. Yeah, that makes sense. That's great. And this is all kind of part of this bigger trend of companies and individuals kind of working with outside firms, small groups of specialists to to solve pretty hard problems. And I think with that, there's a lot less risk than there used to be in working with an outsider, but there's still a lot of skepticism. And of course, we we encounter that ourselves. I'm sure you encounter it a lot of the time. And it's always something to the effect of, you know, I just don't believe that an outsider is going to be able to do X better than we can. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on that, how you how you deal with that sort of objection, maybe how your clients deal with it and so on. Yeah. So again, I always come back to taking emotion out of it if I can. And so I'll say to an owner, okay, well, what do you charge? If you were to charge yourself, what would you charge yourself for your hourly rate? And they're like, oh, I don't know. My time is probably worth $350 an hour. I'm like, great. Okay. So now let's look at the math of everything that you're doing. Let's do the same thing for all of your employees. Look at what they're doing. What are they getting paid for versus what you're billing them out at? And does this actually make fiscal sense for you to outsource this and free up their time to work on maybe the more strategic things or things that are going to garner more of the premium pricing? Are you having your people that you're paying $80 an hour to, are you having them do like keyword research? Are you having them update the back end of WordPress websites? Like, what are you actually having them do? And does it make fiscal sense to do that in-house versus out-of-house? So I try to take emotion out of it and talk about more of it from a dollars and cents standpoint versus just having this like emotional pull of like, I can't relinquish that. I can't have the skepticism about that. The other thing that I'll say is that when I'm pairing um, either my own clients or other brands or other people that are coming to me through my website because I know I work with agencies and are looking for a recommendation. I am very transparent about the fact that the vast majority, I would say 99.9% of the people that are in my resource roster, I have either hired at my former agency. So you know that I've been working with them for a very long time, or I have hired them as a consultant, or I've already paired them with another agency and those relationships are going really well. Or I have recommendations from people who are in my close network that they've worked with them and that they've been, you know, had great results. So these are people that I trust implicitly because I know their work firsthand. And so it's not the same as going out to an Upwork or just Googling something and saying like, oh, let's try this company for this. There's a, a trust there and there's experience, there's historical experience with them. I think that goes over much better because then it's not just kind of like, hey, we're using this this person out of the phone book or there's a, a much more risk involved in it, if that makes sense. Right. And that's what I love about about your site is that it's focused on the person who's actually going on the site. It's like, th- this is something for you. <laughs> but, but so many agency sites are about, it's all me, me, me. It's all right. <laughs> 
Here's yeah, I call it I call it we syndrome. Right, and yeah. uh, I, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. So, when you're doing positioning, what are, what are examples of some of the most common changes? I mean, if we're using the website as a constraint, maybe that's a good one, or maybe you have others. But what are the sorts of things where you're like, here here's what I'd recommend changing? And then- yeah, so so it, when we're doing positioning, and what you're talking about is translating positioning messaging into a website, mm-hmm. so that you're essentially allowing prospective clients for that agency to qualify themselves as much as they're disqualifying themselves. Right. We want them to self-identify when they get there, which means that we have to be very clear about who we serve. Uh, if you don't like the word serve, because some people have an issue with that, you can talk about it from the standpoint of who we partner with or our industry focus or the verticals, you know, whatever, whatever verbiage makes sense to you. So it's about identifying those, spelling those out, whether that's in a dropdown or on a landing page. Also talking not about our services, but more about the value we provide and the impact of to the brand or the client of working with us. So I don't like to get into, or I certainly would would change any navigation that has like services and then a dropdown menu of like, social media, SEO, every single agency that you look at that does digital marketing, they have that. Well, what that does is it essentially creates a Chinese menu of services that you're asking potential clients to now look at that and self-prescribe. Well, if you want to be in a commodity seat, keep that stuff on your website all day. If you want to be in the seat where you're guiding and you're advising and you're almost acting like a consultant or consultancy to these clients much more valued, much more high price associated with that, you'll change all of that. Um, So that's a big part of it. And then I would say just being really clear with the positioning statement, like stripping out all of the language that's, here's who we are. Here's what our process is. Um, Here's what we believe. Here's how we work. All of that is only about you. It's like you're you're going to the party and you're that person who just stands there and talks about yourself the entire time. Nobody wants to talk to that guy, right? right? But if you engage with me and you start asking me questions about, you know, what's the last book you read or what inspired you yesterday or what are what challenges are you facing right now? What project are you working on that's that's coming up? I'm going to be so much more engaged, right? right? And if some of the things that you're coming back at me with are resonating with me, because we're, we're having this great dialogue, you essentially want to try to recreate that on the website. Yeah. And so many agencies do this for their clients, right? Yeah. This is what they do for a living. They understand the buyer persona. They tailor all the content, all of the graphics, all of the videos, everything to engage that buyer persona and move them through the funnel. But right. then you look at the agency's website itself and you're like, did you guys forget that your website could be a business development tool too, because nothing on your site is reminiscent of what the work that you're doing for clients. So yeah. What happened? Exactly. Right? And I, I liked how you put it like that, where it's the best, you know, the greatest historic copywriting I've seen on a sales page or in a sales letter or with all the greats for meat size safety or whoever. It always is kind of like a conversation that you're having just in your own head right. when you're reading it. And there's, right. there's give and take. There's the writer talking about themselves and then there's questions that you're asking yourself. But most agency sites, you know, as we talked about, it's the we thing, which, yeah. which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So w- with the time we have left, um, I- I'd love to, to hear your, your thoughts on scale. And we, you know, we've talked a little bit about that as it applies to strategic partners, but I right. think I'd love to hear your experience with who to hire when, are there level off points? Are there certain things where it's like, okay, you're at this stage, you need to think about 
hiring this person and that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where there isn't just a black and white answer because every agency is different. And I don't want that to come off as like a cop out, but it's true. You know, every agency has different capacity. I mean, obviously just from a financial standpoint, you have to look at like what you're bringing in. Do you have a predictable pipeline? Are you looking at timesheets to see that people are actually maxed out? Do you really need to hire this new person? My first question would always be, is this something we could outsource? Whether it's to a contractor, or if you're in California now, there really are no such things as contractors, right? We have to have temporary employees. So, you know, I would look at that first though. Like, is there a different way that we could go about this? Whether it's through outsourcing, a strategic partnership, a freelancer, somebody that we can bring in that's not necessarily going to add to the overhead. Because again, you don't want to just keep piling that up if there's a, a situation where you lose, let's say your your agency is one of those agencies that re- relies predominantly on referrals and you have a client that is taking up um, or accounting for a pretty large percentage of your annual revenue, you get too top heavy and you've got to fire a bunch of people or lay them off. So you don't want to be in that situation. That's a terrible seat to be sitting in. So I would look at all of those things and figure out what makes the most sense for your agency, um, what you can financially handle. And if you've gone through all of the tiers of, no, this, this doesn't make sense for a strategic partner. This doesn't make sense for a freelancer. We really need somebody sitting in house, whatever the situation is, go through that entire process before you actually make an offer or even put a a job description out there. Right. And it seems like the world is moving in that way and that's becoming more, much easier than than it once was. So I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. As we're kind of finishing up one question that I always like to ask is what, what are you seeing? You know, what, Trends either in the world at large or the marketing or agency world, are you seeing that you think people should be paying more attention to? Yeah. So I don't want to sound like a broken record. Um, Positioning is definitely, you haven't gone through the process of really uh, diving into strengthening your positioning because you're still working with clients who are just a resource drain. They're not great to work with. They're not really respectful. They're not ideal for you that would be an indication that you have a positioning issue. I guess the other thing that I would say is really, as you're looking to grow, look at what are the things as the owner, what are the things that are on your plate that you actually detest doing, that you know that you should not be spending your time on, figure out whatever way you can to get that off of your plate so that it can free you up to do business development so that you can make more hires or find strategic partners for all this work that you're bringing in. You know, there are virtual assistants, like be creative about, you know, what you can do to actually get those things off of your plate. So in terms of like what I'm seeing from the agencies that I'm working with, I think it's just positioning, making the agency owner understand that if they were more optional in the business, not 100% optional, but, you know, more optional in the business, um, they would have the clearer mindset and focus to be able to understand how to scale these things, right? For me, that's that's the majority of what I focus on with my coaching is really more like mindfulness and training from that standpoint. Like let's yeah. let's get their heads right so that they can actually help propel this agency in a really thoughtful, intentional way. Yeah. And and I think it's really easier rather to get stuck in in sort of a local optimum, you know, where 
you're looking at what's worked and you do want to double down on what works, but there's, you're kind of losing the magic of the things you don't know. So I think that's, that's where somebody like yourself can be really helpful. Yeah. yeah. And I think also like when, when you get in that monotony, that daily monotony, and obviously I'm speaking from experience, um, you start to lose passion and yeah. that's exactly what happened to me. So I feel like part of my purpose is that if I can help other creative leaders or agency leaders, not necessarily let that passion burn out to the point where they're like just completely checked out and done. If we can tilt that a little bit differently to create the life that gives them more joy and brings more passion into their daily lives because they're working on the things that they want to work on and that really, you know, feed their soul versus the things that are soul crushing. That's kind of why that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great place to end. Uh, Kelly, how could people get in touch with you? Oh, my website is klcampbell.com. Awesome. We'll get that linked up. Kelly, thanks again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode was sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.